of Hebrews is a wonderful book. Um, it is a book uh, that was probably written around AD 62. Uh, we really don't know when it was written. It seems to have been written, though, before the fall of the temple in AD 70 that the Romans destroyed, because he's still talking about the temple worship and the sacrificial system that was going on. But we're not exactly sure exactly when it was written. We're also not sure who wrote it. Eileen knew Apollos, but uh, your guess is as good as mine. I guess some reasons for why I think it might have possibly been Apollos but nobody knows for sure uh, in that handout there that we'll pass out at the end. We do know that the audience seems to be uh, Jewish believers who had come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were being tempted to fall away, to go back into apostasy and turn back to Judaism away from Christ and the New Covenant back to the Old Covenant. The relevance of this passage this morning is that uh, some of you have heard about Jesus your whole life and praise God for that. Some of you, he's only been known to you for a few years. Some of you, he may be thrilling to you. Some of you, he may be stale in your minds. To some, he may be intriguing, but not compelling enough to have a relationship with, so you follow at a distance, so to speak, if that's possible. To many of you, He is fresh, He is astounding, He is your life, He is your joy, your peace, your love, your master, your friend, your Savior. And those watching at a distance may be wondering, is He really the one I can stake and trust my entire life on in eternity? For those who may be stale or even apathetic, you may be wondering if they can make it through another message. To those disciples whose very life is Jesus and have the fresh juice of his life flowing through their veins and are walking in his steps, I want you to be gripped, be rooted deeply in him, to learn Christ, as Colossians says, and so walk in him. But very simply this morning, for all of you, in whatever category you are in, I can honestly say that the Spirit desires to have your confidence staked deeply, anchored firmly in Jesus Christ in this letter. And these first three verses are the door into awe of Jesus. We can kind of break the, the book into, into three sections here. Uh, there are more detailed outlines. And there's an outline from, a, uh, uh, that I, from Warren Wearsby on the book of Hebrews and the handout that you'll get here as you leave this morning. But I find it interesting that the subject of the very first Christians, Acts says, was daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Philip goes down to the city of Samaria, and the Bible says he preached Christ unto them. When he sits down with the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot, the Bible says he preached unto him Jesus. As soon as Paul was converted, the Bible says straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues. And we should never be ashamed to preach what the apostles preached, what martyrs and confessors preached. We hope to proclaim His glorious gospel of the blessed God as long as we live. And we hope that when this generation and my generation passes away, unless the Lord comes, there will be a succession of others who will have nothing to preach save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
Because this is, after all, the very subject of what all men need. They may have cravings over, over, uh, over other things. They may have felt needs they think need to be fulfilled. But nothing can satisfy the real deep want of their nature but Jesus Christ and salvation by His precious blood. And so this morning, I feel like I'm only holding a candle to the sun as we look into this passage. So I want you to look past the speaker and look into this text and verse 1. And we're going to ask ourselves, how did God reveal himself to Israel's forefathers in ancient days? Answer, verse 1. God who at sundry or diverse or different times and in diverse uh, uh, various manners spake in time past unto the fathers, their forefathers, Israel's forefathers, by the prophets. By the prophets. So he answers our question right off. He spoke in ancient days and many different ways and different time periods. God delivered the revelation of himself in pieces. There's a progressiveness in the Old Testament as God unfolds the revelation of himself. Through the Old Testament, God spoke at many different time periods. Abraham, you think of how he spoke to Adam. Uh, He spoke uh, to Israel. He spoke at many times. He spoke in fragments. He revealed a little here. He revealed a little more here. God also spoke in various ways. He spoke through visions. He spoke through angels. He spoke through events. He spoke through people. He wrote words in stone. He spoke through a donkey. He had prophets act out in drama like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, his word, and proclaim it to all who would hear their voices. So his communication was revealed in parts, piecemeal, we could say. It was an unfolding of God's word to Israel's forefathers. But how has God revealed himself in these last days? Verse 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by, and notice the word in italics there, it's not in the original, it literally says by son. By son. He has most clearly and finally and sufficiently revealed himself in his son, in a person. By prophets in many times, in many ways, before, but now in these last days, by his son. And literally, it means God has spoken in someone who is a son. He has spoken in son, or by son. What is he saying? That Jesus Christ is the climax, he is the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself. It was an unfolding. And it has unfolded in His Son. He has spoken in Son. It, Jesus is the part and parcel of all of this, what it was all pointing to. And why is this special? Well, this morning I want to use the acronym uh, Messiah. And I want to use the acronym Messiah and show you seven things from our passage this morning that lay out the glory of Christ so that your heart can worship Him and your soul can unreservedly trust Him with your all. First thing I want you to see is that he is called the heir of all. The heir of all. Look in verse 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Heir of all things. I'd like you to quickly flip over to Psalm chapter 2. As the writer uh, references probably Psalm chapter 2, specifically verses 7 and 8. It's a psalm that is quoted uh, several times. In the New Testament, it was an anchoring psalm for the believers as they were under persecution. 
In Acts chapter 4, it was part of their prayer to the Lord that the Lord would enable them to speak boldly in spite of their persecution. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen, the pagan, the unbelievers, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. That is a foundational text for missions. He will receive, back in Hebrews, every knee one day, bowing to him. He will receive the reward of his suffering, the reward of the suffering of the Lamb. When people of every kindred, tongue, and tribe who have come to him in faith through his sacrifice praise him as a lamb slain for him, his inheritance. But not only, not only that, notice that the verse says, the heir of all things. The heir of all things. Well, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ created this universe. John 1 tells us that. Colossians 1 tells us that. The following verse will tell us that. He will receive one day all creation free from the curse in a new heaven and a new earth. He will receive it all because it all belongs to him who made it in the first place. And he paid the price to purchase this inheritance back from sin. He is the final revelation of God, folks, because he is the one appointed to be majestically rewarded. Majestically rewarded as the heir to the Father. Notice what it says in verse 2. After the heir of all things, it says, By whom also he made the worlds. He made the worlds. The one who came to live among men as a man created men. He made all things by speaking his word without exhorting any energy. In a universe... With uh, the Hubble telescope uh, that is now, you know, outdated now. But they tell us that as far as the Hubble telescope can, can, uh, can, can calculate, there are 100 billion galaxies. Galaxies. Okay? That we know of. Galaxies of stars. Who knows how many stars are in each of those galaxies? And God has taken one galaxy that we live in, the Milky Way... Which, if you went 186,000 miles each second, would take you 100,000 years to go from the end of one place to the other. That's just one of the 100 billion galaxies. And he's put a little speck of dust in it with a very perfect system for life. And he's placed that speck of dust we call our planet Earth in that creatures made in his very image who are to represent him. And he has a perfectly designed solar system as one small part of the Milky Way galaxy, our solar system, situated with just enough gravity, exactly far enough away from the sun, with a moon that orbits to move the waters and the tides so the planet wouldn't become stagnant and bring death, and a highly complex ecosystem that is able to self-correct in many ways. With whole systems, not only the magnitude of, uh, uh, of, of the universe, but whole systems and even the digestive system of a frog. That live and move and follow a design task to digest bugs. 
He has perfectly designed the giant star Betelgeuse, which if you put where our sun was, it would extend all the way out to Jupiter. That's how large it is. Roaring as it burns its hot gases in immensity. And he also arranged the delicate microscopic life inside of a drop of water that you dry off from after a hot summer day swim in the lake without even thinking what's in that little drop of water. He is the final revelation of God because he expertly designed, created this entire universe. He expertly created it. But thirdly, the passage says in verse 3, who being the brightness of His glory. The brightness of the Father's glory. The brightness of God's glory. And the picture here is of a ray or a beam of light sent out from the sun penetrating the darkness. The bright radiance. He's talking about the very glory of God bursting forth from the Father. The light that shines out from the Father. The the giving off of blinding, radiant rays of light. You cannot separate the rays of light that go off from the sun from the sun, can you? His deity, His Godhood is what He's talking about. The ancient Nicene Creed says, God is God, light of light, very God of very God. In other words, He's co-equal with the Father. We don't know how that is. We don't know uh, uh, how that works. We just know it's true. He stands in the nearest, deepest possible relationship to the Father. He is the radiance of His glory. It's a relationship of intense love, of delight. So the Father can say to him, this is my beloved Son. And yet, he is one with the Father. And there's no separating him. Philip said, show us the Father. Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And when the writer says he is the radiance, the brightness of his glory, the writer said, is wanting us to shade our eyes. Shade our eyes, because we can't look at this wondrous sight without being dazzled by it. That word brightness, many folks say, is uh, the, the word that sums it up is the word effulgence. And we don't really use that word very much. Uh, uh, but, but brightness is, 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 is really the expression of what it is. Brightness. You know, when you're walking out of your basement, and you go up, or you go outside in the door in your basement, you have a door, and you've been in a dark area, and then it's bright and shiny, and what it does to your eyes, the brightness. As light is to the sun, so is Jesus to the glory of God. He is the brightness of that glory. That is to say, there is not any glory in God, but what is also in Christ. And when that glory reaches its climax, when God, the ever-glorious, is most glorious, that greatest glory is in Christ. Human tongue, human language, my explanations cannot give this justice. It's the infiniteness of His glory. There's a whole sermon in that phrase there. So we can see that He's splendidly radiated. He's splendidly radiated. But look... Not only is the final revelation of God because He is the Shekinah glory, the radiant shining forth from God, but it says, and the express or exact image of His person. He is the exact representation, in other words, of the Father. Does it mean they're 
the same person in that sense. They're, they're, they, are, they are three persons in one God. But the idea here is that all that the Father is, and the essence of His Godhead is deity, so is the Son. So is the Son. Now, word image, that's used there, the express image. Uh, it's a Greek word, character, and it's used only one time, and this is it, in the entire New Testament, but it was used in secular use of money, when they would take a rod with an inscription or stamp on the bottom of it, and, and they would stamp that, uh, the bottom of that rod onto a, you know, a, a precious metal round disc that would eventually be a coin, and what was on the bottom of that rod would be imprinted on the image of that coin. And so... The bottom of the rod, the image there, would match exactly what would be imprinted on that coin. The coin reflected exactly what was on the rod. And Jesus is the exact representation of the Father in His essence, in His nature, as God. He says, if you've seen Me, you have seen the Father. He is the Spirit, and the Father is very God, a very God. He's the fullness of God, which is pleased, uh, which in Him was pleased to dwell, Colossians says. He's not the highest created being. He was always existing, never created, forever God, and He is the final revelation of God because He is the exact representation of God. So we can say He is specifically represented. Specifically represented. Next, look what it says in verse 3. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding his idea of bearing up, of carrying along to a purpose. He carries the universe. Jesus, that little baby in Bethlehem, carries the universe. He holds it together. He moves it toward his purposes. By him all things consist or hold together. He is dynamically active in creation. He is not passive. He is uh, uh, one who is involved. He doesn't just wind it up like a toy and let it run. No. His word holds the incalculable weight of creation in the palm of his hand. It has never wavered. It is never wearied. It is never wasted. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Is he big enough to be involved in your life? Yes. He holds it effortlessly together and he moves history to its appointed purpose. He is the final revelation of God because he is upholding the very universe itself by his word, his word of power. He intensely, powerfully carries this universe in one day to its completion. Can you trust him? Can you trust him for your salvation? Can you trust him in daily life? Can you trust him as Gary is saying that his grace is sufficient? But look at what he's done as well. The Bible says, when he by himself purged our sins. You see, the biggest assault upon his creation, the sin of man, the biggest problem in the universe, he has provided for. He has more than forgiven those who repent. He has made them pure. You could go light years in any direction infinitely, and you'd be still able to see the decaying and deteriorating effects of the universe as stars burn out, as debris flies through the space, because of the effects of man's sin. But he's provided the way to be right with him. This implies his perfect sacrifice, and our full trust in it. 
Did you know that Jesus Christ has purged your sins even before you've committed them? It says, when he had by himself purged our sins, past, present, and future. Spurgeon says this, There we stood before the sight of God as already existent in all their hideousness, but Christ came and purged them. This surely ought to make us sing the song of songs. Before I sinned, he purged my sins away. Singular and strange as it is, yet it is so. Requires faith to appropriate that great transaction. He writes, now let every believer, if he wants to see his sins, stand on tiptoe and look up. Will he see him there? No. If he looks down, will he see him there? No. If he looks around, will he see him there? No. If he looks within, will he see him there? No. Where shall he look then? Where he likes, for he shall never see them again. According to the ancient promise in those days and at that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. Shall I tell you where your sins are? Christ purged them. And God said, I will cast all their sins behind my back. Where is that? All things are before God. I do not know where behind God's back can be. It is nowhere, for God is everywhere, present, seeing everything. So that is where my sins have gone. I speak with the utmost reverence when I say that they have gone where Jehovah himself can never see them. Christ has so purged them that they have ceased to be. The Messiah came to finish transgression and to make an end of sin, and he has done it. And folks, the end of quote here, he is the final revelation of God because he perfectly finished the work of sin. He is ably sacrificed. He is ably sacrificed. Finally, in verse 3, after this fact, verse 3 says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son of God, in whose person God drew us to, were any less than what is said here. Our faith and our hope would be vain indeed. Because He had not ascended, it would mean God had not accepted His sacrifice, God had not resurrected Him. But he died, he was raised to life, and the resurrected Messiah uh, uh, ascended as the reigning king. You can read this in Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 22, that power that raised him from the dead seated him. And to be seated is to exercise the majesty of God and to do this in, 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 in all its infinitude, Lenski says. He is the final revelation of God because he has been accepted by his Father and exalted as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He happily reigns. Happily reigns. What a Messiah. See his glory. See his splendor and worship. Cast your sin on him. Take his full righteousness. Come to him, the song says, naked for dress, thirsty for drink, hungry for bread, blind for sight, diseased by sin for healing, enslaved for liberty. Galatians 6.14 says, far be it from me, but the boast. And Paul says, except and the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And Isaac Watts expressed this in 
this hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. You see, we're sinful wretches. We follow the leadership of Lucifer and rebelling against our Creator. He was the Prince of Glory. He was the Beloved of the Father. He was the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and yet He died for you and for me. How can we be proud and arrogant in light of that fact? That the Prince of Glory humbled Himself because of our sin. Watts writes, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. And you've got to ask, what's important to us, really? Too often it's possessions, promotions, pleasures, popularity. All the things that stroke our pride, right? What's important to the Father? I want to tell you, it is His Son. It is His Son. And weak and wounded sinners who have been knitted to His heart through the Lord Jesus. That's why, because God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, His only begotten Son. How can we focus on the vain things of this earth when we see the beauty of Christ? Watts says, See from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Crown in His skull? Nails in his hands, blood and sweat flowing down his lacerated back, tongue swelling, lungs bursting, and he stays upon the cross and he finishes the work. Pain, sorrow, and he stays on the cross till it's done. Why? Because this was the place where sorrow and love meets. He proves his commitment. He substitutes that crown of gold for the crown of thorns. And he who had heaven takes hell that we might be found perfect and complete in and with him. And the last verse says, were the whole realm of nature mine. If I could have the whole world, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If we had the world to give and give back to him as a tribute of what he's done for us, it would be too small and pitiful, Isaac Watts says. But you know what you do have? Your heart. Your life. Your all. Your possessions. The best of what we can offer isn't not sufficient. That's all we have. And so we're going to give him our pathetic all. Not because we can ever pay him back. But because, mysteriously, he is delighted to accept our all. That's what we're celebrating this morning. Amazing love of our Savior by offering him our soul, our life, our all.